Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and today's conversation is with author, professor, and mother who wrote a beautiful book, that is important for all parents, not just if you have a child with autism. The book is called The Anti-Romantic Child, and it's the story of the ideals and illusions and expectations that come with becoming a parent and how you can shift gears to raise the child that you have rather than the child you thought you were going to have or that you thought you might want to have, the challenges that you face and the surprises about who your child is. So. I hope you'll enjoy this episode and welcome Priscilla. I'm so happy to have you here, Priscilla. And I um, I have so many questions and I think everybody will want to hear about your experience, which you so beautifully captured in your book. And um, so that's kind of what we're here to talk about today. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> um, so I found a connection with so much of what you talked about, but but the first thing that I noticed is this incredible training that you had and fluency in your poetry mm-hmm. because that was your career and your academic interest and how life experiences completely changed the lens through which you saw Wordsworth poetry and also, um, you know, everything around that from your expectations. Yeah, your parenting and all of those things. And for me, because I learned a lot about developmental psychology and everything in my field before I didn't learn everything, but I was trained. (laughs) (laughs) I still have much more to learn, but I was trained before I had children. And then I had kids and I was like, oh, this is completely different now. And I think that that I really connected with that because you can feel so fluent and sure of your interpretation of things and how you connect with ideas. And then all of a sudden it all goes away and you have, you know, you have to start again. So I want to hear a little bit about that. So it's funny because I ended up in graduate school specializing in romantic poetry and it's not something that I loved when I was a child or even when I was in high school. I was a very passionate English student in high school, but I didn't read the romantics until I got to Yale as an undergrad. And I completely fell in love with Wordsworth. So if most people know Wordsworth, they know him through 
those incredible lines that gave the film Splendor in the Grass its title. Though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, glory in the flower. We will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. Okay, so, <laughs> and, you know, this idea of um, uh, this, this kind of unparalleled bliss of childhood, this time when everything seemed magical, when you had a sense of wonder and joy and awe, and losing those things as you grow older, uh, trying to hold on to them. And that's the reason why Wordsworth writes poetry is, is it's an attempt to hold on to those feelings that most people lose when they grow up. And so those lines for me resonated when I was in college because I had lost my childhood. My parents split up when I was 10. It was sort of strange that they this divorce happened and my whole life completely changed right at the time when I was actually entering adolescence. And so he really spoke to me in terms of this sense of a before and after, Aliza, mm -hmm. and the sense mm -hmm. of, you know, having these ideals and having these, uh, this sense of magic and wonder, and then all of a sudden it's taken away and there's a kind of disillusionment and a disenchantment. And then I, and I wanted to have children more than anything else. I mean, I was passionate about literature and passionate about becoming a professor, but I really, most importantly, wanted to become a mom. And I had Benj, my first child, when I was very young for my cohort. I mean, I was 28 when I had him. Mm -hmm. And I was in graduate school and no one else in graduate school or very, right. very few people were having babies and very few professors, women professors, were having children. So it was absolute. And, and around the time that I gave birth to him, I was hired by Yale. Like I literally did the interview about a month before I gave birth to him and got the job. Wow. So, and then when Benj was around two years old, we started to I started to have a lot of concerns about his development and I was talked out of them by a well-meaning pediatrician, by mm. my husband, by my mom. In fact, actually, Lisa, the, you know, I, I think in a way I had sort of had concerns all along, but I managed to suppress them. Because then, you were attributing them to your own, like maybe you were just anxious and imagining things. Well, that's what other people told me. That's what other people told me, that I was a hypochondriac. Yeah. And I was just like a typical over-anxious mother. And, oh. um, you know, and I think also he had a lot of incredible strengths that were evident from a very young age. And I thought, well, maybe this is just, you know, he was reading when he, fluently when he was two. He was spelling words on the floor of our apartment. Like he mm. would walk into the room and there would be these words spelled out on the floor with these letter and number blocks. He was creating number chains. He was um, singing with perfect pitch and drumming on furniture with perfect rhythm. And so I just thought, you know, maybe this is, this is what kind of brilliance looks like in a two-year-old. Right. This is like an eccentric, and, and my ex-husband, um, a very, very brilliant person, uh, had lost his parents. So both of his parents were gone by the time we had children. And so there was no one to ask about what he had been like when he was a child. So I thought, well, maybe this is what Richard was like when he right. was little. Um, and I read when I was three. So I thought, you know, he's got two English professor parents. Um, and this is just combined in this child to create an exceptional, strange, but wonderful little being. And then <laughs> you know, um, which in fact he was, um, right. but you know, when I got a call from a nursery school that we had applied to telling me that they had concerns about his development, 
They said, you know, he doesn't answer questions. He seems overly fixated on letters and numbers. He was not able to have a conversation. He didn't seem interested in the kind of play that his peers were doing. I initially was horrified and kind of aghast uh, by what I perceived this conversation to be their kind of excessively normative expectations of what a child should be, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I knew that he had been smiley because my ex-husband had witnessed this play date. He'd been in the room. And I knew that Bench had talked and he had spoken to them and he had said he had counted for them and he had um, spelled with letter blocks words on the floor. Um, and so I thought, you know, this is just there's not one right way to be a child and this school is, is excessively rigid and they're just not recognizing this unique, wonderful little being that Benj is. But right. then almost as soon as I hung up the phone, I thought, hmm, you know, there's something about the things they're saying um, that actually reminds me of concerns that I've had. Uh, mm-hmm. And I honestly don't remember, Lisa. I don't remember how, but I, I remember that I typed into Google um, something like early reading, difficulty answering questions, and it brought me to the website of the American Hyperlexia Association, which doesn't hmm. exist anymore. And I'm reading through this list of quote unquote symptoms. And Benjamin has demonstrated virtually every one of them. And all of a sudden, my whole sense of my child is completely upended. And, hmm. you know, there was a very vigorous debate at that point. Is hyperlexia a subset of what we used to call high-functioning autism. I hate right. those terms because I, I hate the high-functioning, low-functioning distinction. Right. Um, and, you know, the prognoses were extremely grim. And I was reading things like, you know, 80 to 85% of kids with autism will end up in institutions. Oh. Um, all of these things that Benj did that I had thought were so special and wonderful, like singing with perfect pitch and reciting entire Sesame Street skits. And it like um, <laughs> took t- it turned it into disorder instead of gifts. Exactly. It turned oh. it into disorder. And it and it sort of evacuated my sense of his originality. Mm-hmm. It turned him into like a paradigmatic example right. of what a kid with hyperlexia is. Rather than, you know, this kind of strange, wonderful, unique being. And it turned all of what I had thought were passions. Like I thought he had a passion for singing and a love of poetry. He would recite Frost poems. Um, Actually, he recited a couple of Wordsworth poems and Yeats poems and all these poets that I loved because I had given him poetry books. And all these websites and message boards were saying things like, this is rote. This is parroting. It's mindless parroting. It doesn't demonstrate love. It doesn't demonstrate passion. It's actually a disturbing and ominous symptom of his Mm. disorder. And I suddenly realized that this ideal of childhood, which Wordsworth, I had already had before I read Wordsworth. It's part of the reason why I fell in love with Wordsworth. But this ideal of childhood is a time of magic and wonder and, and ardent passion and physical exuberance. You know, Wordsworth mm-hmm. writes about kids skating and climbing mountains and um, romping around and uh, being open-hearted and affectionate and all of these things that I had looked forward to um, 
being able to kind of connect with my child through all those things that I had loved when I was a child and all those modes of being that I had loved when I was a child. And I suddenly realized like, I have a child who seems to be the opposite of this. And that's why the book is called the anti-romantic child. Mm-hmm. Initially, initially, I, I he <laughs> seemed to be the opposite of all these things. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, when, when you and I were first conversing in email, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated, and I'm so grateful to you for seeing this, is that I think that my experience with Benjamin is essentially every parent's experience mm-hmm. writ large, right? I had right, it in an right. exaggerated form, right? I had yeah. it where I had to confront the essential difference and otherness of my child. Mm-hmm. I could not, I could no longer project onto my child or fantasize about my child, what my child was going to be like. And I had to withdraw all of these expectations that I'd had for what it was going to be like to be a mom and what my baby and my, my toddler and my child was going to be like. And I think while initially that was disorienting and devastating, ultimately Mm -hmm. it's a growth process that we all have to go through as parents. It's so, it's such a beautiful lesson for all parents. It's just, yeah, you were thrust into it and did not have an option, but Mm -hmm. we all, we all need to get to a place where we stop projecting our own expectations of who our children are and what, what this whole thing is going to be. And we'll, you know, and it protects us too, as mothers to not, and fathers and caregivers to not uh, miss out on our whole experience because we've already predetermined what everything's going to be. So exactly, exactly. It, it's, it's wild the way that you came to this so quickly. Um, so tell us more. <laughs> this is incredible. <laughs> no, it's just incredible because there's part of this is if you have a child that you're looking at and thinking, is something going, what's going on? Is something going on? And here's my unique child, my magical child. Oh wait, there's like a, a list of, uh, you know, symptoms, quote unquote, that are making it seem like this is not my unique, extraordinary child. And also coming to terms with the idea that even the unique and extraordinary stuff, we're all humans and we're all, you know, if you really do dive in, even in typically developing children, it's kind of hard when you start to find out that there's you know, your pediatrician says how many words, okay, it should be, you know, roughly between this amount and that amount. And that's the normal curve. And these are yeah. around the times you're going to hear a giggle. And this is around the time yeah. you're going to hear. So already you're taking this unique experience and it's being turned into like, ow. <laughs> like, exactly. <laughs> the world of milestones. Yeah. And it's markers <laughs> and um, growth charts and, yeah. and those things. And and we all experience as parents over and over again. I mean, it's so painful when you're made to feel or, you know, you're in a situation where you see your child not quite fitting in or not quite measuring up to some conventional marker of achievement or right. growth or anything like that. And, you know, I think um, in those first months after I realized and I, and I immediately, you know, made an appointment to go to the pediatrician and he referred us for a developmental evaluation. And we were very lucky that we were at Yale and we got to take him to the Yale Child Study Center and have him evaluated. Um, I tried in all of those moments of, you know, filling out endless uh, forms and charts and bubbling, you know, does he do that? You know, how much, do, how often does he do this? Or right. how many words does he have? All those, all those things. 
And I just tried in every appointment, every evaluation with, you know, an occupational therapist or a speech therapist or a physical therapist, I tried to just look at these evaluations as a way, and this is something that my pediatrician helped guide me to. He was such a wonderful man, even though he quote unquote missed the diagnosis for years. And I've been told, you know, why aren't you angry at him? I'm not angry at him because he, first of all, we had a much um, less developed understanding of autism. Right. In 2000 2000 to 2002. Mm -hmm. Um, But also because I think he genuinely appreciated and loved and saw Benj in terms of his strengths always, which was absolutely essential all along the way. So, you know, as I'm filling out these forms and taking him in to be evaluated by strangers and, um, you know, seeing him perform or not perform tasks that are being asked of him, right? Sometimes I would think, you know, this, this task is kind of absurd. Like, right. why does he need to play, you know, play tea party? And, <laughs> um, but then others, you know, like he couldn't walk up and downstairs. He mm. didn't know how, if, if he was asked to take steps, he would just plunge forward and, and the therapist would have to catch him in her arms. But I just tried to remember at every point, like these evaluations, these um, assessments, these checklists are really designed to help me understand and appreciate and be able to support and love and help my child better. Mm. So I always, and, and that's, you know, been all along the way with all the therapies, all the support, social skills groups, et cetera. It's, I never want to look at them as ways of either understanding and or you know, kind of enacting deficiency or weakness or flaw, right? It's all about helping him not to be fixed, not to be cured, not to be improved, but to be supported and helped in becoming, in being and becoming the person that he really is, that he has always been all along the way. That is incredible. That is such a beautiful outlook and the only one. And it's so inspiring. It really is because you could get so stuck in fixing or treating or, you know, so, and, and has that had an impact on your relationship with your son? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that I've said when I've, when there've been bumps along the way, so he was, he went to a mainstream preschool because we were lucky uh, I went to Vassar, got a job at Vassar right around the time that he was initially being diagnosed. Mm. And they have a wonderful lab nursery school on the campus that's run by a developmental psychologist. And so he was able to be in that school for three years and it was a mainstream school. Now, initially they told me, we're not sure we can handle him and you have to bring in a it and which is special education. I didn't know yeah. what that meant. <laughs> you know, there are all these acronyms too that are thrown at you. I had no idea. What but it essentially meant. they were saying for, for anybody who doesn't know someone who can be there kind of as an extra, his own personal uh, support system and teacher, if they feel like the teachers in the classroom won't be able to give him the attention that he needs. Exactly. And, it, and at the time, I remember I kind of bristled at that. And I was like, well, why does he need, you know, that's going to make him stand out and that's going to kind of prevent Mm -hmm. him from interacting with the other kids. And eventually we didn't actually need this yet, although I'm very supportive of kids having them. Um, But they did allow his speech therapist and his occupational therapist to come into the classroom. And ultimately those therapists 
made the educational experience better for all the children. I'm sure it's a real, it, it really does help everybody thrive to have Doesn't their it? eyes. Yeah. And, you know, it partly as a result of our experience and working with the school. And, and I, that's how I started. I started giving talks with the director of the nursery school and school um, parent collaboration, which is a huge passion for me and how to work productively with a school, because it's so easy to get an adversarial relationship where, you know, parents understandably don't want to hear from teachers and caregivers. And in, in, if it's daycare, um, you know, your child is not measuring up in this way, uh-huh. or, you know, there's so many ways that that dialogue can start in a way where you get polarized, right. Or a parent just refuses to hear anything or a parent comes in and tells the teachers what to do, right. In an overly dom- domineering way. So I think that became a huge passion of mine. And then when Ben graduated, the school now, the school developed a fund to support uh, bringing an OT on staff and making the school inclusive. And it's now kind of known throughout the Hudson Valley for being an inclusive school. So in a way, the school helped us and helped Benj bloom and changed Benj's trajectory, but he also changed the school. That is so wonderful. <laughs> you know, that's the most beautiful way that these things can, can happen. Yeah. But then, you know, we moved to New York and um, the public school options, we applied. You remember in my book, I talk about like agonizing process of applying for first Ugh. grade. And I think it was 23 schools. It might've been 24 and he was accepted at one school. And um, it was a new school and thank God for it. And it only went through, it was a special ed school and it only went through fifth grade, but now it goes all the way through. Wow. And he was in special ed all the way through. And I was told over and over again, you know, if you keep it, because he's, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, you know, he's always been brilliant, but didn't not test well when he was younger because he had a lot of scatter. Uh, but all along the way, people were saying, oh, you know, you're going to stigmatize him and he'll never be able to go to a regular college if you have him in special ed. And he's not going to develop social skills because it was the right decision for him. I, I'm i a huge proponent of inclusion when it can happen. But again, you know, in the same way that I look at Benj and I look at every child that I meet because I, I do a lot of speaking um, and every parent that I talk to, we have to take them as individuals. and each path is different and there's no one right way. And it's all about looking at the child in front of you year mm-hmm. to year, things change, you know, year, not, to, year. Being year to year, to even sure. semester to semester, I uh-huh. would say, Lisa. Um, you know, and towards the end of his time in high school, he took the ACT in his junior year and it was sort of like a trial run. We were just going to see. And I remember he, uh, the day that he took it, I was giving a talk um, on autism at a Jewish community center in an Orthodox part of Brooklyn, which is actually where my dad had grown up. It was very full circle moment. (laughs) And I'm showing these videos of Benj um, playing the guitar and singing. And in the talk, you know, I said, you know, next year he'll be applying to college. And they asked me, well, where are you going to apply? And I said, well, I I don't think he can dorm. And he's probably going to live at home and go somewhere in the city. And he took the ACT that day. And about six weeks later, he called me. I, think, I guess he was at school and he had gotten the results. And he said, Priscilla Gelman. He never, he never calls me that. He never calls me that again. He goes, he goes, he goes, okay, mom, mom, mom. Remember how we said that this was a test and like a trial run? And, you know, of course, I'm going to take it again and again. I got a 36. 
Okay, so a 36 is a perfect score. And about a week later, we get a letter and it says, congratulations, Benjamin. 1.9 million kids took this test. Something like 1374 got your score. And here's a link to, to share with your local media. Oh. And then just like, and mom, we will not be sharing this with your local media. <laughs> he goes, I don't want my friends to, you know, feel bad. And um, I'm just happy because this means we're going to get financial aid. <laughs> you know, and it just, that sort of encapsulates for me in a way his social emotional development, which is, you know, that's just as important as getting the score. I was just um, about to say his response of even being aware of not wanting his friends to feel bad exactly. is as good as the score, if not better. Absolutely. And, you know, and when I said to him about the score, I said, sweetheart, you know, thank you so much. And also his empathy for me thinking this is good for financial aid. Right, right. But, um, but you know, I said to him, sweetheart, you know what I'm so proud of is that you were able to show your gifts when you took this mm -hmm. test and you love school and you're passionate about it. And, you know, he wants to do something. He's, well, I'll get to that part in a minute of where he is now. But um, so he ended up, um, we applied only to schools in New York City and to Vassar because I thought, well, maybe he could handle that because, you know, I thought I even considered moving up there mm -hmm. if he needed to live at home. So flash forward a few years, he is a sophomore at Vassar. He is dorming. He is triple majoring in math, computer science, and music. <laughs> he is singing in two choirs, um, auditioned choirs. He studies classical guitar. And he lives in a substance-free dorm uh, and has a wonderful group of friends who are earnest and hardworking. And because that was one of the biggest fears for me in sending him off to college. Mm being in a dorm with partiers and, you know, not being able to kind of understand the social rules of it. So I would never have been able to predict that. And, you know, I, I, I tell parents though, and, and, you know, I'm, I celebrate his accomplishment because it was the right path for him. But at the same time, Elisa, I'm always very wary. You know, one thing that I've learned through my experience with him and meeting so many parents and, and children over the years doing talks there is no one best way to develop and grow. There is no right trajectory. There is no ideal outcome. It's all about assessing what works for each child and each family. And yeah. Benjamin's going to Vassar does not make him more successful than a child with autism who does have to live at home. And might not go to college, yes. but is a happy, fulfilled person mm -hmm. who has found his or her place in the world. How often do you think about your socks? If you're like me, not so much. But recently, I learned about socks that actually change the way I'll think about socks. They're called Bombas. And actually... When I mentioned to my daughters that there was a sock company that I was going to learn about and I was wanting their help to pick out the socks, when they found out it was Bombas, they were so excited. And I actually thought they were being a little bit silly to be that excited about socks. But it turns out 
They're the most comfortable socks. They're made of super soft, natural cotton. Every pair comes with arch support and a seamless toe and cushioned footbed. And it's comfy. It's not too thick. There are colors and patterns. It's what your feet are daydreaming about. And for every Bombas purchase, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. So these socks feel good on you and they feel good for you. And when I asked my kids why they were so excited, before I knew what was so great about Bombas, they said, because they're so comfortable. So buy your Bombas at bombas.com slash humans today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash humans, bombas.com slash humans. Hi, new friends. I'm Jackie Schimmel, philanthropist, motivational speaker, glowing wife, animal rights activist, and a shoulder to cry on. Not really. I'm a crazy bitch, but a hoot and a half. If you haven't listened to my podcast, The Bitch Bible, brace yourself, pour yourself a stiff drink, and get ready to laugh your ass off or cry. Make sure you subscribe yourself to The Bitch Bible Podcast right now. You're going to effing love it. Obviously, he's thriving. And that is the important thing. It happens that it worked out in such a way where it looks like, you're right, a successful story, a success story. It's so important, whether you have special needs or not, that message of it's not that outcome that's particularly right. It's just it was right for your family and for him, which exactly. So that is exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, the other aspect of this, you know, his diagnosis, he didn't get an autism diagnosis when he was evaluated when he was little. And I was very resistant to the label. Um, I was fearful that he would be, and I'm going to be, you know, I I really, it's really important to be honest about this, that I used to fear that autism label and think, because there were so many pernicious stereotypes and kind of ideas about what it meant to be autistic. And I thought, you know, we were told he's empathetic, he's connected, he makes eye contact, he's smiley, he likes to be around people. So there's no way he could be autistic. And I accepted that. And my understanding of autism has developed and grown so much. I don't actually say in The Andromantic Child that he's autistic because at the time that I submitted it to my publisher, he didn't have the diagnosis. Um, since then, I've written a lot of pieces, uh, a lot of articles in the New York Times and various magazines, proudly declaring him as autistic. Mm-hmm. He got the label when he was 12. Um, I was afraid that he was going to uh, be embarrassed or in some way unsettled by getting the label. In fact, it's been extremely liberating for him. It has. Yes. How has he used it? Um, yes. For his. I think, you know what's funny, Aliza. So he got, you know, we had to do these psychoeducational evaluations every few mm-hmm. years because I had to sue the Department of Education every year to get his tuition reimbursed because they would give me an inappropriate placement. They would put him <sighs> in a general ed public school classroom because they'd say, well, he's brilliant. Look at his scores and his grades. And he's, you know, he's accomplished. He can do it. And it was, you know, he was in a very small school, six or eight kids in a class. He needed that. He needed social skills support. He needed occupational therapy, all these things. So in the one psychoeducational evaluation, the evaluator, who was the same person, um, by the way, all the way through, and she said, you know, my understanding of autism has changed. And Mm. I now see that he is on the spectrum. 
And I think that it would benefit him to get this diagnosis uh, in really socially and emotionally for him to understand himself as an autistic person. Yeah. And so I knew that this had been done and that the label was on. She also thought that it would help with the, with the Department of Education because speech there, you know, speech disorder and all these diagnoses were not getting us the right placement. Right. So I knew that this had happened, but he didn't yet know. And he came home from school one day and he said, mom, you know, we were in health class today and we were talking about different um, disabilities or disorders or conditions. And because his school was not for autistic kids, it was for kids with a wide variety of dyslexia, ED, you know, um, all sorts of things. And he said, and mom, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm Asperger's. (laughs) And I said, really? Why do you think that? <laughs> um, now, I, I, Elisa, you know that Asperger's is now subsumed under the autism yes. label. But, um, every, but people listening, I think, probably don't know that. So I think it's important to... Yeah, it's now been included within... Now, I actually think that were it still a separate category, I think Benj is actually more autistic than Asperger's, according to the... Because he was never obsessive about one thing. <laughs> and he was... I had more significant challenges when he was two and three than a typical Asperger's kid will. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, you know, it's, it's high intelligence, difficulty socializing, um, being obsessive because he has an OCD diagnosis as well, being obsessive compulsive about checking and, and uh, social anxiety, all those things. And I said, Bench, you know, you, Shoshana, your, um, you know, his wonderful, and she was a psychologist as well, uh, has just given you an autism diagnosis. And he said, oh, so, you know, I, now I feel like I, I'm, I'm not just weird. Oh. And oh, no, it killed me. At least it killed me. And he was like, and he said, you know, now I understand, like, cause he used to say if he would, he, he was extremely anxious and that was the main symptom yeah. of the aut- autism after he had, the speech had straightened out and, he was his occupational therapy. He had profound fine motor and gross motor delays and all that stuff had straightened out. He would still have meltdowns, you know, hysterical. Mm. If he lost a game, if he made a mistake, um, if he thought he could hurt someone's feelings inadvertently, he would, you know, scream, cry, throw himself down on the floor. And he said, you know, I used to feel like I was, I was the only kid in the world who did that. You know, it was heartrending. And he would say, uh. now I know there are other kids who do this. Yeah. And, you know, it just gave him a sense of community. It gave him an understanding, gave him the ability to advocate for himself. Um, And, you know, I think when he was making the decision to go to Vassar, uh, you know, we talked a lot about self-disclosure and he gets incredible support there. Like the Office of Accessibility is wonderful. He gets weekly coaching, (laughs) uh, executive functioning coaching. They have wonderful counseling groups. Uh, and he was, you know, debating, like, should I tell my fellow group, you know, this group of first year students, should mm-hmm. I tell them? And I said, well, how would it help you? Do you think, or what are you afraid of, you know, in telling them? And he figured out, you know, I think it would help them understand so that if I, if I say something that's like too blunt, or, right. you know, I'm awkward or whatever, they're going to understand. Or if I have an anxiety about loud sounds, if we go to some event where there are firecrackers or, you know, whatever they'll understand. And so he has, he's told, you know, everyone, uh, everybody has been extremely accepting and understanding. He has discovered, you know, that there's so many kids and families who have an autistic family member. Um, it has increased people's empathy for him. And I think, 
You know, and the other thing that's been so beautiful for me to witness in him is his growing, not just comfort with, but desire to be a positive role model um, for kids with autism. Because he, you know, I did not use his last name. He doesn't have the same last name that I have. I never showed any pictures of him. When my book came out, a couple of morning shows uh, wanted to, major morning shows wanted to book me, but only if he would come on the show with me. (laughs) And I said, no, you know, he's not, he's not ready to do that. And when he was about, I'm trying to think, I think he was about 13. uh, I wrote a piece for Real Simple magazine about connecting with Benj through Christmas specials. (laughs) And they called me and they said, you know, we would love to, they were coming to the apartment to photograph me. And they said, you know, we would really love to photograph Benj as well. And I initially told them, oh, no, 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 there's no way. You know, he's very private. He doesn't like to stand out. That's the phrase that he used to use. He doesn't (laughs) like to be, you know, noticed and like talked about. And I mentioned this to his therapist just in passing. And the therapist said, you know, I think that he's old enough where you should probably give him the option. Like you mm-hmm. should tell him that they have requested this and see what he wants to do. And I asked him, thinking that he was immediately going to decline. And he said, you know, mom, this makes me anxious because I hate standing out. You know that I do. But I really feel that it might help if people can see my face and they can see that I look, but I don't look scary and I don't look um, (sighs) disconnected. And so they, he, they came and they photographed him both with me and by himself with his guitar. (laughs) And music has been a huge bridge for him always to the, he's, he's exceptionally gifted. He has perfect pitch and, rhythm and is a beautiful singer. And, um, but the reason that we chose guitar is that it's a social instrument. Mm-hmm. And, but you know, when he was first studying, he had such severe fine motor delays that it, I couldn't start him on any instrument until he was six. Cause he couldn't, he just couldn't do it. And watching him now, you know, playing these <sighs> extremely difficult and intricate classical guitar pieces, it's just, you know, it's just astonishing. I mean, I can't watch it without tearing up because just like looking at little Benj, desperate to express himself through music, fumbling, his fingers fumbling and slipping, not having that hand-eye coordination. And you know, another example um, I'm realizing of of how something that initially might seem like a challenge or Mm -hmm. um, I always like to say challenge rather than a flaw or deficiency. So he was extremely, extremely skittish when he was a little kid. He hated to be touched. He hated to be held when he was a baby. I mean, that should have been a warning sign to me, but. How could you know if you don't know? I know. And I just thought I was very invested, you know, know, in this idea of, so he's not me. Like I'm a hugger. I'm warm, you know, but he's not, and that's okay. And I don't want to, you know, force him to conform to some norm. Um, but he was extremely skittish and sort of would dart away whenever anyone would come up to him. And he started playing ping pong because my mother got a ping pong table in her house. And at first he was not good at all. And, (laughs) but because of his skittishness and, you know, hating something coming towards him, he worked incredibly hard to be able to get that ping pong ball back over the net as quickly as he possibly could. (laughs) 
And he eventually, so his school had a ping pong tournament. Benjamin, I, now he will correct me when he listens to this podcast if I'm wrong. <laughs> he, he, he won the ping pong tournament. I think it was four, possibly five times. Oh my God. So he became the ping pong champ after starting out as somebody who, you know, would scream every time the ball would come towards him or, you know, run rather than hit it back because he was so afraid of being hit by a teeny little ping pong ball. (laughs) Uh, You know, so this is another example of how you just never can predict what will spark or initiate, you know, some passion or ability. and all the OT that he got, I think now he has better anti coordination. I was going to say, he, that's yeah. right. He, he probably started off fumbling more than others and then ended up doing so well because he really focused and got training. And this is all just such growth mindset, even just the idea of exactly. thinking of these things as just challenges. Because exactly. that's, that's just all of those things are well so we have to wrap up soon but I really I have two more questions that I think will tie this together yeah the first one is how did all of the because the way that you're talking about all of this your relationship the way you talk about your son the way that you're talking about parenting makes so much sense to me that you've moved into So I got certified uh, in early 2018 to teach mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. Yeah. So did this experience, I mean, how could it not have, it's your life, but what, what kind of brought you there and is the way that you teach mindfulness, self-compassion and the way that you do your work. And does that help you bring some of these kind of incredibly universal, I don't know if lessons is the right word because it sounds so trite the way I'm saying it, but no. It really feels like it, it, this speaks to every single parent. It's not a special needs parent. Although again, I think if you have, if you're experiencing a special needs relationship, then it's incredibly powerful and important to read this book, but no matter what it is, I I just wonder what, um, you know, what you brought into your mindful self-compassion and the work that you're doing, because it seems like, you know, how you got there must have been ways for you to get to a place where you could really be present for the experience that you are having and not the yes yes well this actually ties together everything including Wordsworth so I started doing transcendental meditation when I was Uh about 21 or 22 Mm -hmm. and the reason is because my mother had a friend over who asked me what I was writing my senior thesis on at Yale and I told him Wordsworth And he said, you know, Wordsworth brought me to TM, Mm -hmm. which was so interesting. And I said, oh my gosh. And then my mom said, let's sign up for the TM training. And we did it together. And TM was the most important thing for me. It it really taught me uh, not just, you know, having a mantra and quieting my mind, instilling my mind, but being able to say twice a day when I had young kids and I had come home from teaching undergrads and I was, my father was dying of cancer and my marriage is breaking up. Being able to say twice a day for 20 minutes, I get to go into the darkened room and focus on me and not be continually managing and taking care of other people. So it was extremely 
uh, it was necessary for me in getting mm-hmm. through all those stresses. And then when I started exploring this world of child psychology, I, I and, you know, I think I told you in an email that I almost went back to school and got a PhD in child psychology <laughs> because I was so like, it just, uh, why not at this point? <laughs> right? um, I still might, I still might. But I started reading all of these books about cognitive science and brain science and uh, and mindfulness meditation. And I read this book by John Kabat-Zinn and mm-hmm. his wife called Mindful Parenting. Yeah. And that was maybe 2004. I read that book. And it just, it, it's so beautiful. One of the quotes from The Antimantic Child, the quote from Rilke about seeing the other person whole against the sky. I encountered that quote. Um, in I the love book. Rilke. I love Rilke, but I encountered it again in that, in that book. And I started reading Pima Chodron. I started reading Sharon Salzberg. I started, and then when I was a literary agent, I represented um, a wonderful meditation teacher slash doctor um, on his his book um, about Buddhism. And what, I, which one? Um, he wrote a book called Sustainable Happiness, mm-hmm. and it's wonderful. He trained with Bob Thurman, and. He actually, it's so funny, the full circle thing. He's in my writing class, but he and his wife, they have a, um, an institute called the Nalanda Institute. And that's the institute that I trained in. So I did this training class. I have all, you know, I was an aerobics teacher early in my life. And oh, now I was a college professor. And <laughs> now I'm a book group leader and I teach for Yale Alumni College still. And I teach privately. I teach writing privately. But, you know, the one thing, and I was like, I really, really want to be a meditation teacher. It was like a lifelong dream because it has helped me so much. And um, so, you know, in my meditation teaching, I will often bring poetry into it. And what I love about insight meditation is, and the loving kindness meditation is that it's not just sitting alone with a mantra that you repeat, right? Mm -hmm. It can be, I, I can teach groups. Um, I, I teach via Skype. I teach people over Skype. We're looking at each other. And I individualize my meditation teaching um, in the same way that I, you know, I advocate to teachers and parents, right? Like taking each person um, on his or her own terms and opening yourself to accept that person's otherness. So with meditation teaching, it's, I'll ask, you know, what are your particular stressors right now? And um, what's going on in your life? And what do you feel you most need? And, you know, I think the self-compassion, I mean, as parents, we feel so guilty. We beat up on ourselves so much. We feel like, oh, if I, I mean, I was racked with guilt when I discovered the bench had all these issues. Why did I allow myself to be talked out of my concerns? If only I had intervened when he was 18 months old or two years Mm -hmm. old. And so many people said to me, you know, the window of opportunity, I hate that. (sighs) Closes when they're three and he was just about three. Well, I well, luckily neuroscience the lie to that, right? And yes, and neuroscience has has updated itself and that is no longer even coming out of people's mouths, thankfully. (laughs) Exactly. And that ties into meditation again, like neuroplasticity. And, you know, we can all learn to deal with our triggers and we can all change, you know, we can go to these kind of habitual modes of thinking. If if people um, have fear or resentment or are irritable, right? Um, Meditating helps diffuse irritability. It helps manage anxiety. And, you know, to wrap this up in terms of Benj, um, he took a gap year in between high school and college. I thought it was extremely important. Um, I always told my college students, 
you know, take time off if you feel mm-hmm. like it would benefit you. Again, you know, we're in this culture where there's this race to, to wherever, right. to wherever, nowhere, <laughs> wherever, whatever it is. And, you know, so during his gap year, you know, we just, we did all these things. Um, he took a couple of college classes to get used to being in a college class while still living at home. And he did an internship um, with a tech organization and just, you know, did a lot of things just to make himself feel um, as mature and accomplished. And uh, the most important thing that he did though, was I taught him how to meditate. Mm. And he meditates two to three times a day. And it has helped. I mean, he still, you know, talks to a psychologist twice a week and, you know, goes in for counseling at Vassar. But the meditation, I would say, has been the most important tool in his self-care arsenal at this point. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> that's, that is gorgeous. <laughs> I just love that. Um, I wanted to ask for you to recite your favorite, just I couldn't pick. But if you have any any um, wisdom words worth that feels like it works, <laughs> it works oh, here. how can I pick? I know <laughs> that was a surprise. So if you want to take your time, so many. Um, <laughs> so I mean, these are the lines when I was on the Leonard Lopate show, which is recorded live. Um, I don't think that show exists anymore. But Leonard asked me to read Wordsworth on the air and you know, I think that these lines sort of distill the sense of Wordsworth as the poet of childhood, loss, and nature, actually. So I think it'll, uh, these are from Wordsworth's poem, Tintern Abbey. And this is actually, um, it's the 250th anniversary of Wordsworth's birth this year. So there are going to be a lot of uh, Wordsworth celebrations. So this will be the beginning for some people. (laughs) And (laughs) there you go. So this is from his poem, Tintern Abbey, which is one of my two favorite poems ever. And it's a poem about his blissful childhood in nature and how he grows up and he's gone back to this place that he loved when he was a child and he feels the sense of loss, but he searches for, you know, finding the positive. And um, so these are a few lines from Tintern Abbey. That time is past and all its aching joys are now no more and all its dizzy raptures. Not for this faint I, nor mourn, nor murmur. Other gifts have followed. Uh. For such loss, I would believe abundant recompense. And now for listener Q&A. Your podcast has been a fantastic resource for me as a mom, but also thinking about how to translate information to parents and topics from a professional standpoint. I work in child psychiatry as a nurse practitioner and have for many years. I started working in the field before becoming a parent, and I think being a parent in practice has brought a different dynamic into the work that I do. How do you find a balance and support as a working mom who is working with families? Well, this question may not be a universal question, but I think it actually is very relevant for any of you who are teachers, caregivers, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, social workers, nurse practitioners, anybody working with families. Um, And so I think it's worth addressing and acknowledging just from a personal standpoint, I will say that it is much easier to talk to other people and other people's families about what's going on in their household, how to support them and how to help guide 
in problem solving than it is to be able to step back in your own life and do the same thing. So one way that I strike a balance is to not have any expectation that I'm going to be a different or better mother because of what my job is, but that I just focus when I'm at home on being a mom and not analyzing my kids in the way that I might if I were trying to help another family problem solve and really just connect with them. And I have had to learn that over time because my kids are, as all kids are, aware when I'm trying to be someone who answers a script versus just really being present and listening to them and talking with them and allowing for us to have the same challenges that any other family has so that I'm not just at the ready with a solution to a problem. As um, a practitioner, we should not just solve problems for anyone. We're here both as parents and practitioners to help guide and help other people think about the way to solve a problem for themselves so that they have space and capacity to have competence in this area on their own and not depend on anyone, including me. And I don't want my kids to feel that way either. So that's how I find balance. That and, um, you know, taking a few deep breaths before you walk in the door. For the next question, Hi, Dr. Eliza. We have an 11-month-old daughter. She's never been a good sleeper. This is our first child and I'm still nursing her. So my question has to do with sleep. We did cry it out at seven months old working fairly well. And then we went into cold season and now she's actually starting teething and basically wanted to be held and sleep on us all day, which of course is so nice and sweet because she typically plays hard nonstop. We have a bedtime routine that involves us showering. The bath seems to give her more energy and she kept pooping in the tub. PJ's coconut oil, two to three books, and then nurse cuddle. And we lay her down slightly awake with her passy. And she has a few stuffed animals in there now. So We have a vaporizer in her room right now to help her breathing. The teething seems to cause increased mucus, white noise machine, blackout curtains. How do I know when it's okay to let her cry it out versus go to her because of the pain and the hunger and the teething? Right now, I'm going with instincts and the sounds of her cry and the volume of her cry. Thank you so much. Well, honestly, it sounds like you're doing everything beautifully. You have a routine that's predictable and soothing and also you're waiting till she's calm, but not totally asleep to leave her to go to sleep. So of course, it's hard to distinguish when it's a teething pain or actual illness that you should respond to. And of course, if you have a child who's sick, you don't want to do cry it out. Teething can be incredibly painful. Usually, unfortunately, what happens is that because you're aware of the teething and you are responding, sometimes that becomes its own cycle and you end up using teething as an excuse for weeks and weeks on end of going in and constantly shifting the previously good sleep habit into lots of waking up. So what I would say is if you have more than two days of what feels like teething, it's probably not the painful part of teething where it's coming through the gums. It's probably now a new habit. And one way to check is if they're fine during the day and it's only nighttime that the teething seems to occur, then you might give it a couple of days so that you feel comfortable that you've given her enough support and soothing in case she is in pain. And then you probably can tell yourself she's going to be just fine and I can back up a little and let her go through the unfortunate 
new cries that come with having to redo sleep training. If you think that the cries sound totally out of control and after a couple of nights, it's just not getting better, then, you know, you may talk to your pediatrician. Maybe there's something else going on. Really, you can usually tell if you allow a child to cry to get themselves back to sleep after you've done all of the soothing and all of the prep and they're not getting a little bit better every, you know, 15 minutes or so. And certainly the next day, if it's just not coming down, then something else might be going on. And if not, just give it a little bit of time as it gets better and better. And you should be good to go until the next cold comes along. Next question. Hello, I love your podcast. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about child preference when it comes to immediate family. My 15-month-old son has also had a very close bond with my dad and has rejected my mother harshly. Recently, he started rejecting me for his father, which is devastating for me. I'm his main caregiver, and I'm so confused and hurt. How do I navigate this? Is there a reason for this? My own mother is also feeling rejected. Thanks in advance. I am so sorry that you're going through that because as the primary caregiver, it is so hurtful to feel like with all that love and care, you're getting rejected um, for a parent who maybe isn't putting in that much time. What can happen at 15 months of age um, is that we find our kids going through that normal separation anxiety phase and also assessing who they're trusting and who they're interested in and they're testing boundaries. And so it may be also that a 15-month-old boy has a lot of physical energy and is enjoying the play that they have with their dad or grandfather. So what you might want to do is watch and not try to imitate or mimic the relationship that's developing with grandpa and dad because everybody has a different relationship with their child and that's super important but rather watch how they're connecting, what draws your child in. And sometimes you just need to be patient and sit and make yourself available to your child's invitation. Same with your mom. Be available, but not intrusive or forcing the connection. Not to say that you are, but sometimes when we want our connection, we want it so badly that we're forcing it and the child picks up on that. This happens with adults too. And you're leaning forward and towards someone and they're pushing away from you. So the best thing to do is just take a step back, take a deep breath and remember that this is not personal, as personal as it does feel. This is just a time when there's a preference for one caregiver or another, and maybe in fact, a preference for a gender. And that's just a temporary thing One thing to also do is notice what they enjoy, what your son enjoys, play with it by yourself and sit on the floor and same thing for your mom. And then again, the invitation is there for your son to participate, but you're going to just enjoy yourself playing with those blocks on your own. If he joins you, great. And if not, you're fine. And that way there's no control issue and there's no sense of rejection and there isn't so much emotional weight there. Remember, they're trying on different things and they're going to change every month. And what's great is for you to remain confident that at the end of the day, you are in fact the primary caregiver. Your child will love you. And this is just a time when he's exploring other other things and other activities and other people. And we'll always come back to you as someone who's not going anywhere. 
Thank you for listening and giving me your time and trust. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more questions, please DM me on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please give me feedback and would love for you to subscribe, rate, and write a little review. Have a wonderful week.